Hi, this is Gage from Why God Why. We're in the midst of a season titled The Credibility of Christianity, and we are diving into all types of topics like faith and science, politics, diversity, faith and beauty or superficiality, and more. And as we go through this season, uh, we want to hear from you. We're going to do an episode at the very end of the season where we discuss the whole season and respond to listener questions. So as you listen along and you think, hey, I wish they talked about that question further, or they didn't really hit on this topic related to the episode. We'd love to hear from you and get a chance to discuss it together. So as you're listening along, if that occurs to you, send your question you'd like us to discuss to peter at browncroft.org. If you're extra savvy, uh, send us a recording of your voice actually asking the question, and we can include that in the episode. We'll only share your name if you give us permission but we'd love to hear from you. With that, enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Why God Why podcast. My name is Peter Englert. I'm one of the co-hosts of the show. We are here with our producer, Nathan Yoder, and we have a very special guest today. His name is Dr. Russell Moore. You may have heard him as the Christianity Today editor. Um, He formerly was on the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention from 2013 to 2021. He also served as provost and dean of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville. And um, he has many other places that you've probably seen him. He's written for the Wall Street Journal, Politico Magazine, New York Times, and the Washington Post. But we'll let him do a little bit more of his intro. So, uh, Dr. Moore, welcome to the Why God Why podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. Sure. Well, we exist to uh, respond to the questions people don't feel comfortable asking in church. And today's episode is, uh, why does it seem Christianity has been co-opted by politics? Before we jump heavily into that topic, though, I think it's important for our listeners to get to know you. You're not just a a politician, but a pastor and a theologian. So why don't you share a little bit more about who uh, Dr. Moore is? Well, I live in Nashville, Tennessee with my wife, Maria, and we have five sons. Uh, Two of them are grown and out of the house and three of them are still here. And um, that's who I am. (laughs) Well, so as we jump into the conversation, I just want to mention to our listeners, uh, Dr. Moore has a book out, Losing Our Religion, an Altar Call for Evangelical America. Um, Thinking about our listeners, most of them are kind of doubting and deconstructing. And one of the fascinating parts of your story is in 2021, um, you left a role in the Southern Baptist Convention. And um, I guess I'd be kind of curious... Now that we're in 2023, this episode's going to come out in 2024. There's a a lot of listeners that are wondering, you know, do I have to leave all of Christianity or leave the denomination or the network I'm a part of? And you just have a fascinating story. How are you reflecting on that major transition in your life? And how would you encourage people that might be in a similar situation as you? Well, I would separate um, really, uh, really uh, strongly separate the uh, the notion of leaving Christianity, leaving uh, faith in Christ, 
which I've not done and not been uh, even uh, tempted to do in this mm-hmm. in this time. Between that and leaving a particular uh, church or church network or church home, now often those feel like the same thing, and in some ways they they felt like the same thing to me. But it was because I kind of had to undo uh, some good aspects of kind of belonging to a, a people from birth, from before birth uh, on. And, and part of it sort of um, disentangling from some propaganda. <laughs> and so you had to, I had to kind of learn the difference between those two things. So I, I would say that. Um, the, the first, ca- the case of Christianity, of Christ, um, I, I would say, don't walk away from Christ. Even if you, even if you don't really know, uh, well, what's holding me here right now? That's okay. I mean, Jesus is more than happy to deal with that uh, a lot. But when it comes to a particular uh, church or network, that's, that's a lot more complicated because I think, you know, I've done both. I stayed. Um, I'm, I'm by nature more of a stayer, more of an institutional uh, loyalist, um, and I still, I still am. I mean, there's just so much of me that is bound up in my Southern Baptist um, background, education, uh, thought patterns, you know, all of those things. Uh, but I think there does come a point where you realize, okay. I can't work for reform if I'm in a system that's that has reached a certain level of toxicity. If I can't do anything about it and my presence there is kind of a living advertisement for a a system that I start to believe is irreparably uh, spiritually dangerous and toxic, then that's when you say you have to you have to leave. The the thing that I would say is most important though is sometimes there's this tendency for um, people who leave to look upon the people who stayed with a kind of judgment. You know, if, if you if you you should have left uh, when I did, I think that's I think that's wrong. I think there are a lot of people who are called to stay in a particular uh, situation and sometimes are actually able to um, make things better. So you shouldn't have any judgment like that, nor should you the other way around. I mean, I I think, and and one of the things I experienced is um, I have a lot of not just dyed in the wool Southern Baptist friends, but um, institutionally active uh, Southern Baptist friends who are are my friends. But then there are other people who, when we left that world, we sort of became dead to them. And, you know, I, I can think of one uh, woman who was, who was very, uh, my wife felt very close to her and she just stopped responding mm-hmm. to her text messages at that point. So I think that kind of um, judgment, either way, you ought to guard against it. And you also ought to have a sense of, I could be wrong. I mean, when when we were thinking through whether to leave, if it had been left to me alone, I would have never left. I would, I would have been the last Baptist standing, turning off the baptistry water heater if, uh, if necessary. 
But I had some counsel in my life uh, that came in and said, you know, you actually you actually are um, you're a lot more discouraged and demoralized than you than you seem or that or than you feel. And so it took a long time for me to kind of um, to see that and also just to sort of look at the things that I was seeing and to realize I can't do anything about this ultimately before I decided to leave. So you're, you're going to get that you're, you're going to get that wrong sometimes and you're going to be you're going to be um, usually most people are not 100 percent sure whether to leave or to stay. Usually it's 51, 49, one way or the other. And so I think we should just have grace with each other on that. You know, before we jump in, I think that your story and what you just said there was super powerful because the 20 somethings that I sit down with um, and you came out right away, you said, you know, I, I think we think that being part of a church or a network or a denomination is super tied to Christianity as if I have to give up all of those. And I guess where what I'm thinking about is before we jump into more is what do you say to the disenchanted 24 year old Christian that just kind of feels like politically I don't belong. Um, I live in a town where the Christians are one way and I see it differently. Um, uh-huh. You know, cause I, I think that that's kind of the heart of this topic is there's guilt on one hand. I should love these people like Jesus does. But then mm-hmm. on the other hand, there there's a righteous justice of, I don't feel like these individuals are living out the gospel. And then there's somewhere in the middle, kind of what you talked about, the humility of maybe I don't see what I need to see. How would you encourage that 24-year-old today? Well, I think before the 24-year-old can know the situation, he or she needs to to know himself or herself. Uh, and that means, uh, to, I mean, when we're in the middle of something, uh, all of us as human beings and all of us as fallen human beings have a tendency to not see things realistically. So in, in our house, my wife and I ha- have learned to say to one another, if one of us is tired and, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're really feeling despondent or cranky about something. The other will say, you know, I think that what you're dealing with is maybe a two level, but it feels like a 10 to you. And usually, at least in my case, when my wife says that, I usually step back and say, she's probably right. And I'll know tomorrow. And inevitably, she she almost always is because I'm just not seeing things uh, correctly. And I've done that the other way, too, where I see things as, oh, this is this is good. This is going to be better. We just hang on a little bit longer. And that can be unrealistic, too. So that person needs to say, am I more the kind of person who's tempted to cutting myself off from people if we're not 100 percent in agreement? Okay, if I'm if I can see that pattern in my life, then I need to build in some protection from that. And and I need to stop. And and when I start to do that, to say, wait, is this real or am I the kind of person who just tends to merge into a crowd? And if that's the case, I need to correct for that and to build that in. So you need to you need to know that you need to see that. What I would say is 
Um, if, if you're a follower of Christ, you do need the body of Christ. You do need a, a community. You don't necessarily need the expression of the body of Christ that you're in right now. And in fact, it might be that that's not uh, it's not possible for you to faithfully serve Christ in such a in such a place. But don't don't replace that with an idealized um, view of the body of Christ. And also, if you do have to leave and you're going into um, a new place, sometimes I think there's a tendency to um, people, those of us who've come out of bad situations, to kind of constantly be looking over our shoulders for, uh, you know, what's a, what's the bad thing that I left and let me make sure that it's not going to happen here. So, for instance, here in, uh, I live in Williamson County, uh, Tennessee, which is one of the most um politically polarized and kind of sometimes crazy places in the United States of America. Lots of reasons for that. But one of the reasons is that we have so many Californians and Illinoisans and New Yorkers uh, who are moving in. And people might assume, oh, well, the blue staters coming into a red state are going to kind of moderate that. But it actually works the other way. Because the Californians we tend to get moving here are leaving California and saying, hey, I'm we're, we're going to make sure this place never turns into San Francisco or Oakland or uh, Orange County or wherever it is that they're they're leaving. And so they then become uh, hyper vigilant and, and looking for a fight. Not everybody, but but some people. Uh, and I think you could do that with a church, too where what you're doing is you're just constantly tensed up and looking for uh, what happened before. There's a certain degree of that that's good. You, you know, you, you learn some things having lived in a, in a context, and so you can recognize them sometimes when other people don't. But there can be a kind of um, your entire identity becomes bound up in making sure that what happened to you in the last place doesn't happen here in some ways that can be unhealthy. Wow, that's um that's a really powerful context to this question. I'm I'm really appreciative of how transparent you've been and just um dare I say pastoral. Um let, let's kind of transition because I think that that's a good place to go. So um in the cover of your book and as I've looked through it, you know, I, I thought this was pretty powerful. You said American evangelicals are losing a generation and it's not because young Christians are more liberal than their parents or moving to Tennessee from uh, California. But many are leaving not because they reject the doctrines like the virgin birth or the challenging teachings on sexual morality, but because they suspect, suspect that evangelicals no longer believe what they preach. Unpack that. Um, there is a, a, a sense, and this is one of the reasons why if you... If you talk to people and you say, what are the reasons that you have become disillusioned uh, with the church? There are often a, a series of different reasons. Um, and so you could uh, you, you could sometimes look at a at polling data and you can see 13 uh, percent say this and 15 percent say that. But if you look at all of them, they have a, a common theme and the common theme is a sense that the church is um, um, is pursuing the gospel as a means to some other end. 
is really about the politics or it's really about the marketing or it's really about the power or it's really about misogyny or uh, white identity or whatever. Uh, it's, it's a means to some other end. So once a person sees that, it, it, it honestly often doesn't even matter if a person likes the end or agrees with the end. If they see that that's really what it's about, then they can get that without giving up a Sunday morning, much less uh, carrying a cross. So, so that's that's I think a big a big part of it with what's going on within within the church right now. The other part of it is I think I refer to in the book this um, experience in Ireland. Fenton O'Toole has written this. Um, he calls it a biography of a country of, of Ireland, and one of the things that he talks about is uh, the fact that Ireland was always kind of an outlier in Western Europe, very Catholic, very uh, socially conservative uh, because of of that uh, Catholicism. That has completely changed and flipped, and uh, one of the main reasons for that is the church sexual abuse crisis in the Roman Catholic Church. People see the the cover-up that happened there. And he explained it, I think, a really, a really, in a really powerful way because he says you had people who were um, so trusting of the church's authority that they found themselves bringing their child to apologize to the priest who molested that child and started to realize, wait, we actually are more moral than the church itself. And so once that happens, then there is a all kinds of things shift around. And indeed, they are seeing accurately, people are seeing accurately some of the rot that was going on in that church and the misuse of authority. And so often I find that that's, that that's the primary driver. It's not that you don't have people who um, who don't still walk away because they don't believe the virgin birth or because they want to, um, you know, have sex with whoever they want to or, or whatever. You still have that. But but that tends to because of our cultural situatedness, that tends to peel those people off a lot earlier uh, than a situation. Th those people now in this kind of a culture aren't typically anguished about walking away from the church. That the people who are encountering this sense of, I'm afraid this is just about something else, or that there's some dark reality here, those people are, are typically very anguished. And that's one of the reasons why I, I get so angry sometimes with some of my fellow uh, conservative evangelicals who will say, well, you know, it's not that there are a lot of scandals uh, taking place in the church. It's that people want to leave the church. And so they uh, talk up the scandals more. I mean, that that is just not just arrogant. It is completely detached from reality because uh, it, we're in a culture where for most people, there really isn't a social cost for not being churched. In, in most parts of the country and increasingly almost all of the country. But these are people who usually are anguished about this sense of, of um, realization about the church. And so I think that is, is what I'm seeing quite a bit of right now. Hmm. 
Before we jump in um, to the five ways that evangelicals are losing our religion, as I've looked through, right, I think it'd just be helpful for our listeners because I think that that, um, that book about Ireland is pretty helpful as a comparative. So are you saying that if you had to write the biography on America over the last 100 years, would the big thing be the hypocrisy of we love our neighbor as long as they agree politically or is it just politics in general what help our listeners kind of understand if you wrote that biography of america versus ireland um in, well, instead of ireland what would it say well in some parts of america it would be very similar um, so in, in the Bible Belt, uh, for instance, a lot of the things that have been uh, revealed track very closely with, with what happened with the Roman Catholic sexual abuse crisis around the world, but in, in Ireland particularly. Uh, and then parts of it would be, I think, a loss of politics and a loss of religion. And, and I think I think we think that what's happened is that we've had a heightening of politics and a heightening of religion because those things have, have merged. But really, you, you don't have much of either because politics uh, actually is about people cooperating in the civic space to do stuff. Um, most politics is really boring. Uh, it's about paving the roads. It's about. Uh, you know, paying the national debt. It's about infrastructure. It's about all of those things. That has been eclipsed in American life um, almost altogether. We don't actually expect things to get done. Instead, we have a kind of politics that really isn't political. It's tribal identifier. So when, when I'm saying that I'm a Democrat or a Republican or an independent, uh, usually now, what I mean by that is not I hold this group of ideas to be uh, the the better way to go. Uh, I, I basically think a New Deal framework is the is the way to to run the country with some modifications as we go. Or I basically think that a Reaganite approach to taxes and, and regulation is the way to go. And then we modify it. That's that's usually not what's happening now. Instead, what ha what's happening now is there is a sense of the other people, whoever the out party is, those people are so evil that anything, uh, they, they must be defeated by any means necessary. Mm. That's a very different thing than what politics actually is. And then, you, which is one of the reasons why you, you can look around and you see in Congress, the people who are leaving are usually the people who ran for Congress in the first place because they really cared about uh, energy policy or national security policy or education policy or something like that. They're being replaced by people who really care about being on cable news and having viral clips on on YouTube and and. From that, doing small donor uh, fundraising. That's not politics. Uh, and then with religion, what you have is a, a decrease of actual uh, belonging uh, in community. You have an increasing cluelessness about basic Orthodox Christian doctrine, all of that being replaced with what 
we sometimes will call worldview thinking, but it actually is just here are a list of things that my uh, partisan tribe expects me to emphasize and I'm attaching Bible verses to them. Well, that's not religion either. So you, you've got both of those things falling. And then what happens is there has to be something to fill that in and to give a sense of life and a sense of belonging and, and all of those things. And that gets filled in uh, with this sort of uh, uh, quasi th this re religion as politics and politics as religion. Uh, that seems like it's going to fill the void. Uh, it doesn't. And it's increasingly easy to do because you don't have to, you know, in my in my family uh, growing up, uh, my grandfather was a, a staunch uh, pro-labor FDR Democrat, uh, only voted for a Republican one time. And that was Richard Nixon in 1972 and never did in any other race. He had a brother uh, who was a staunch Reaganite uh, kind of Republican, and they would get together. I mean, I remember being a kid sitting around and hearing them, uh, you know, needle each other in a in a in a fun sort of affectionate kind of way back and forth. That rarely happens now. Uh, and so instead, you get caught in an algorithm that sees what it is that you want and sees particularly what it is that makes you afraid and then gives you more and more and more and more of that. And so that that creates the the situation we're in right now. That's super helpful. Um, take a moment right now. I, I just think it's helpful for our listeners because I, I think what's resonating with them is, um, you know, Dr. Moore is not just a pastor with a view, but it's, let me tell you what's going on in the context. So I think, I feel like our listeners are resonating. Why don't you walk through the five ways that you feel like evangelicals are losing their religion? Well, I think that, uh, I think it has to do with credibility. Uh, and that is whether or not the church can be believed to really be about what we say we're about. Mm -hmm. uh, it has to do with identity, um, whether we see ourselves as part of a global body of Christ spanning uh, space and time, or whether we're trying to attach Jesus as a hood ornament to some, some form of blood and soil nationalism. I think it has to do with authority, um, and because there's a lack of genuine uh, authority uh, we end up clamoring for authoritarianisms of various kinds, political and um, and religious. I think it has to do with um, morality, integrity. Uh, and again, coming back to this idea that, well, the other side is so awful and so unscrupulous that the only way we can deal with them is is by doing the same. So uh, you, you were so frightened by a coarsening culture that what we need to do is to coarsen Christianity in order to respond. Or as the um, as the white supremacist uh, billboard uh, said back in the 60s in uh, Georgia, I believe, to hell with Christian principles, we've got to save the church. That sort of mentality. Um, and then there's stability. Um, I, I think there is a... Uh, there's a longing for revival that's not really about revival. It's actually about nostalgia. Mm -hmm. 
And it's about a nostalgia for something that never existed. And so what we want is this sense of um, of everything the way that it was before, except more so, uh, rather than what God actually does with revival, which is to tear some stuff down uh, and, and then to breathe life into other things. And so those that, that kind of constellation of, of things, I think, have, have come together and they give us a crisis or a series of crises, but they also give us the opportunity to actually hear, as, as Jesus says, hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Gives us mm-hmm. the ability to ask that question. So before we kind of jump in a few other areas, just based on those five things, I want you to imagine Paul comes to America um, in 2023, 2024. He's a New Testament writer, um, wrote most of it, lives in a pluralistic society. There's a state religion, literally state, you you worship the Roman emperor. From your study of scripture, what do you think Paul um, would say to us? Because I think there's a meme out there. You know, if we lived in Bible times, America would be getting a letter. So how do you think, knowing that he was not part of a government, that was supportive of Christianity till a hundred years later. What do you think he would say? I think, I think, I mean, obviously I, I don't know, but I can speculate that there would be a combination of some of the things that we see um, in, in each of the letters, because you have such a fragmented church that different parts of the church need different things. So if you just, if you look at the epistles and you see there's a very different tone in say first Corinthians from Philippians, because there are very different needs going on there. I mean, you have, you have one group that mostly need to be encouraged to, to don't give up, keep pressing. And another group that needs to be told you all have, have completely almost um, adapted to the, the worst aspects of your toxic culture. So I think you have several different aspects of that taking place. But one of the things that I think uh, Paul would take on is the sense of of lifelessness and, and that replacing of lifelessness with something else. So that's what um, I mean, if you come to Colossians three, for instance, that that message of your life is hidden in Christ and Christ is hidden in in God, you have died with Christ, and when Christ appears, you will appear with Him in glory. And and what does that mean? It means here there is no Jew, Greek, Scythian, slave, free, male, female, but Christ is all and in all. Or uh, as as one translation put it, that I really like, there is only Christ, and He is everything. Um, I think that that would be something that would would almost definitely be addressed. Say a little bit more about lifelessness, because I, I think a lot of our listeners, whether they're conservative or progressive or Democratic or Republican, hey, I get a lot of life from pursuing these these ideals, ideas, or even these tribes. What are you saying is lifeless about us today in America? Well, I think you can see it in the way that we're clamoring for um, illusions of life, 
and and one of the one of the main illusions that we um, that we move toward is this sense of being in the middle of a great drama with uh, clearly defined enemies who must be destroyed. Now, again, everything. Uh, Satan is not a creator. The devil's a plagiarist. So uh, everything that is wrong is parasitic off of something that's created and something that's good. So we are in the middle of a big cosmic drama. Uh, Revelation 12. I mean, that's that's where we are. We do have genuine uh, enemies, but they're not. The New Testament tells us of flesh and blood, but principalities and powers in the heavenly places. And we don't fight them the way that we uh, that, that our flesh wants to fight. Instead, how do we fight? We fight again. Revelation 12 by the the, the overcomers overcame by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives even unto unto death. So you've got that. When that doesn't feel real to us, we substitute it with something else. And that's one of the reasons why one of the reasons why we hate each other so much is because it really feels good to hate each other. I mean, it you can you can not only sort of have this kind of jolt of purpose for a little while. If you hate somebody, you also can create a kind of unity. I mean, you, you go to, um, I was uh, telling one of my sons um, when he had his first job in high school, I said, look, there are going to be in every place, any workplace of any kind, anywhere, there are going to be a group of people in the break room who are going to be able to unite with one another by talking about how awful somebody else there is. And so that can create a kind of bonding for a little while. Uh, but ultimately, all of that falls away. And it, it's kind of like with um, uh, alcoholism or heroin addiction or, or uh, uh, porn addiction or meth addiction or whatever uh, sort of addiction there is. What we tend to think is, oh, because this isn't giving me what I need, that must mean I need more of it. And just as with all those addictions, that that does not lead to a good place. That's super helpful. Um, I want to pivot just a little bit. So there's this term out there called Christian nationalism. So as a pastor, I kind of feel caught in between and I'm very concerned about Christian nationalism. The issue that I have is on one hand, um, you have an older generation that says, I'm a Christian first, citizen second. I love America. I put up the flag. And then on the other hand, you have a younger generation. And that's just the way I delineate from my perspective that any hint of liking America is... Christian nationalism as a Christian. And I, I can almost tell you what it isn't more than what I can tell you what it is. And I, I think it's important for our listeners because this is really, it's a problem that the moment that there's a hint that our love for America is dictating how we love Jesus. So how, what's your definition of Christian nationalism 
And what's kind of the best way forward to talk about this without this becoming a label that's thrown out there and doesn't mean anything when it's something really important to us to really engage? Christian nationalism is the use of uh, Christian uh, symbols or imagery uh, or community in order to give a sense of authority or transcendence to an ethno-nationalist movement. Um, and so the, the ultimate goal is the, um, as in 1930s Germany, the, the Volk, the, um, the, the people who are defined ethnically or in terms of the, the nation state, which is something that is completely demolished uh, through, throughout the New Testament in every Pauline epistle, in every gospel, in, in, in every uh, section of the New Testament, that is, that is dismantled and taken apart. So if you look at, I mean, they're always going to be, I mean, you could do that with absolutely anything. Um, we, we can't talk about worldliness because nobody knows what that means. For some people, that means watching TV. And for some people, it means orgies. And so we just can't, it just doesn't mean anything. Well, no, it means something. It, it means that you, you maybe have to define it. Um, and I think the same thing is true here. Look at uh, George Orwell probably had the best um, contrast between nationalism and patriotism uh, in uh, in his his uh, his writing uh, in in one of his uh, essays on on nationalism that I would encourage anybody to to look at because I think it's a really good uh, definition. Christian nationalism is not what people tend to think it is, is it's like Christianity, but amped up and love of country, but amped up. That's not what Christian nationalism is any more than polytheism is really amped up monotheism or uh, uh, polygamy is just really amped up monogamy. No, they're completely different things. Uh, you're, 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 you're doing something completely different different. And actually what ends up happening, like with anything else, with any other kind of uh, idolatry, what you end up with with Christian nationalism ultimately is actually a hatred of one's country. Hmm. Uh, and you can see that right now with the kind of slouching toward Gomorrah uh, picture of, um, of uh, American life and, and culture. Why? Because if you idealize something or you put something in first place that's meant to be in second place, you're ultimately going to resent it. It's not going to be able to meet your um, to, to meet the needs that you're putting upon it. And so the only way that you can then actually love your country is if your country isn't first. Mm. If the kingdom of God is first, uh, then you can actually love your country. And, and one of the ways that you can do that is by saying um, American life is complex, like every other era uh, in history. There are great things. There, there are things happening. So, so sometimes you can have people who what they want to do is to say, OK, what um, is our era is our culture right now? Darkness or light, good or evil, 
And let's find an era, either in the past or the or the future, that is good and light. The Christian view of reality, though, is that every era is under the sway of the wicked one. And in every era, the light is shining in the darkness and the darkness comprehends it not. You know, so so you have that sense of being able to say, I love my country like I love my mom. Um, I love my mom. Do anything for my mom. My mom asks me to sacrifice a goat for I'm not going to do it. And my entire identity isn't bound up in I am Renee Moore's son. That's an important part of my life, but it's not my God. And so I think that's one of the things that's um, that's you know, part part of the difference is that the conflict entrepreneurs, the people who are driving Christian nationalism in Europe, in the United States, in uh, Brazil and other places, Hungary, they know exactly what they're doing. They know exactly what it is. And what they're counting on is that you can have people who start to say, well, I don't know. I mean, is, does it mean that we love our country? Um, so I often say to people, if you want to know, if you say, well, I'm a Christian and I love America, does that make me a Christian nationalist? Well, just use the term white nationalist for a minute for, for somebody who's white. Are you white? Yes. Do you love your country? Yes. Are you a white nationalist? No. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's not actually as complicated as I think we sometimes think it is. You know, I really appreciate that. Something as you were talking that I was just kind of thinking about that makes Christianity unique is especially in the Old Testament, but even in the New Testament, the Bible doesn't hide from the failures of leaders, especially political ones. Right. And the whole point of the scripture is to point people to Jesus. And why don't, if this is what the message of the gospel is built on, and I'm sure that the listeners here, why is it so hard for Christians especially in the political realm, to admit they were wrong? Well, I think one of the one of the reasons is there's something about our fallen human nature that uh, makes that really uncomfortable hmm. to admit that we were wrong. And then you add to it um, a kind of a cultural ecosystem which is really similar in a lot of ways to the the Roman uh, sort of um, culture in this in this respect of Jesus's time, which is that uh, being wrong or showing weakness or vulnerability is uh, contemptible, hmm. and so you don't ever do that. And so you you have that dynamic working where. Um, I used to, I had a friend that we could sit down and we could, uh, argue about something and argue about it and argue about it and argue about it. And then the next time that we'd all be together with another group of people, he would start, uh, arguing the position he had just argued against with me as though it, it was his idea <laughs> all along. And I realized that wasn't that he was being hypocritical. It was that he was going back and pondering it and, and thinking it through. And sometimes he would be convinced that what I was saying is right. Sometimes I'd be convinced that what he was saying is right, but that was the way that it happened. And then you add to that a technological sort of um, 
world around us that that demands immediate sort of getting on the record about something. So there was a uh, a really fascinating article a while back by somebody who was in the in the analog age, the, the pre-digital age. He would write for uh, magazines. And he said one of the things that he noticed was with the old school letters to the editor that there was one time he had written an article and there was a letter to the editor that came in. It completely demolished one of his arguments. So, no, you're, you're wrong about that. Here are the facts. And he said he noticed that his first instinct was to try to find a way to disprove that letter writer because he was on the record, you know, in print with his ideas. And that made them um, that, that made them a lot closer held. Now we're in a time, he, he made the argument, we're in a time right now where people go on the record, so-called, right away. Mm-hmm. And there, there, there's not a time where there are all kinds of things where the, the actual response should be, I don't know. Um, I, I'm stepping back and I'm kind of watching this and I'm seeing what's going on. You can't do that if you immediately have to uh, – declare your position and where you stand on everything, then it just becomes there are people who are sanctified enough or have have the character to be able to say, I initially thought this, but now I think that. But there aren't a lot of those people. So instead, what you end up with, people change their views all the time. Mm -hmm. What they don't do is to admit that they've changed their views. So you look at, for instance, a lot of the the same people who were um, burning Dixie Chicks records uh, in uh, in the the Iraq War uh, era because the Dixie Chicks uh, group they were opposed to uh, the the war on terror. Uh, now would be arguing the exact same position the Dixie Chicks held then against forever wars and so forth. And it's not that those people have said, you know, I, I, was, I was a hardcore hawk then, but then I read some Noam Chomsky and I've changed my mind. I mean, almost nobody, it, it, they, they don't even recognize that they have changed. And I think there's something about human nature that makes that just really hard to do. You've been so generous with your time. I just, two final questions. Um, We just completed a series called Why Do You Still Follow Jesus? And you were recently on the Holy Post podcast uh, with a similar title, um, Why Are You Still a Christian? So, Dr. Moore, why do you still follow Jesus? Because he's alive. And I'm really convinced he's alive. And I'm really convinced that he is telling the truth about himself and in fact is the way the truth and the life and a lot of that has to i think often about frederick beekner uh, one time in answering this question said it's not the result of some syllogisms and and arguments it's that there is something about his voice that makes him credible to me and I want to uh, I want to follow him. And I think that's exactly 
the, the way that it works. There's a deep calling unto deep. There's a, a resonance. So sometimes when people quote Dostoevsky saying, if I had to choose between Jesus and the truth, I choose Jesus. Uh, you say, well, you can't say that because I mean, Jesus, it, Jesus is true. Jesus is true. That's right. But I, I know what he means. And what he means is I find this figure so compelling. And when he says, come follow me, I don't even know why I'm dropping the nets and I'm following him. And sometimes I'm saying to the people next to me, where are we going? What is going on here? And he just keeps saying, well, come on, and you'll see. I find that uh, compelling and convincing. And I don't think that there's anything else that actually answers the longings that we have in the way that uh, in the way that Jesus does in the way the gospel does so you you end your book in hope and we've probably spent you know 80% of this conversation talking about the problem and you just told everybody why you still follow Jesus i'm sure that yet yeah, the simple sunday school answer from both of us that grew up in church the hope for the mess that's today is Jesus. But what would you tell our listeners that you're most hopeful for in the future in this politically divided, divisive time? Why do you have hope? Well, I would challenge the question a little bit. And, and here's why. Because mm -hmm. I think there are a lot of people who want to separate out the problems and the hope. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to, to say like, like we just did, we talked 80% of the time about the about the problems. And now we talk about the hope when in reality, uh, a great deal of the hope is realizing the problems. Mm. So the, the idols starting to disappoint us, uh, that actually is a kind of, of hope. So if you look at what Jesus is doing, I mean, for instance, is, is Matthew 24 hopeful? Um, well, I mean, you might say, no, he's talking about wars and rumors of wars and getting kicked out of synagogues and, um, and people getting killed and earthquakes and signs and that. Uh, yeah. And he's saying all that to say, I'm telling you all this ahead of time. So you won't be thrown when that happens. And so you will remember that I'm the one who who told it to you. So those things are actually together. And so I think that Rather than saying, oh, well, the answer to all of this is better PR for ourselves to kind of reassure us that everything's going to be OK with the church. It's actually not that it's it's the the kid who and I, I often tell people that one of the ways that this shows up for me is I'll often have young men, particularly who will say, I don't ever want to get married uh, because I've never had a good model of marriage or family. My dad walked out on us. Uh, my parents were uh, divorced in a really nasty kind of way. And so were my grandparents and so were my great grandparents. And I don't want to ever do to somebody what happened to me as a child. And in, in all of those situations, I say it's not. It's not. And I can say that with 99% certainty. And when he says, well, how do you know that? It's not because I'm saying, oh, just pretend that all that doesn't exist. It's because you know it. 
So you know that you haven't had a uh, a good model. You know that you have seen what is wrong with that. And so those are often the people who actually are the best parents and the best spouses because they do see that that's not normal and and they're wanting to follow a different way. So that's that's hopeful. And so I would say Jesus has given to us a promise. Um I will build my church. Gates of hell will not prevail against it. He did not say that uh, in Jesus land. Uh, He said that at Caesarea Philippi, place named after the empire that would crucify him and what the place that was a locus of pan worship, worship of um, of a God of excess and and wildness. And he perfectly with perfect tranquility said, I will build my church. Gates of hell will not prevail against it. So. Does that mean that any particular church is going to survive? No. He says otherwise. Lampstands can be taken away. Churches can fall. Churches can go away. But the church ultimately is going to survive. So if we, if we take away the frantic nature of is everything going to just completely fall apart, We take that part away. Jesus has taken it away from us. And we also take away this idea, well, Jesus is going to build his church. So let us eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow. We shall be built. Uh, That kind of fatalism is also taken away. Jesus takes that away from us, too. And instead, come in and say, Jesus is going to build his church. And one of the ways he builds that church is by tearing down um, the, the golden calves that have been built. And I have a responsibility uh, to do everything that I can to maintain the testimony of, of Jesus and his church, not because I hate it, but because I love it so mm-hmm. much. Then I think you're in a, a genuinely hopeful posture. Dr. Moore, thank you so much. Just to remind our listeners, Losing Our Religion um, is come, it's out. Um, it's been out since the summer. And so, um, you know, you're all over the socials um, so people can Google you and find you. But I, I think the most appropriate way for us to close this episode is, would you mind praying for our listeners and just as they wrestle through this question, kind of just the way you have? I'd love to. Yeah, let's pray right now. Father, I I pray for people who are listening to this. There might be some people listening to this who are confused. There might be some people who are hurt. There might be people who feel themselves tipping over into cynicism, or they feel themselves tipping over into despair. And Lord, in all of those situations, I pray that you would, that you would, refocus minds on what it means to be a living sacrifice, what it means to be not conformed to the pattern around us, but transformed by the renewal of our minds. And would you help the people listening to this uh, to know they don't need a, they don't need a map. Uh, they, they don't need a step-by-step guide as to, as to where to go forward in their lives. What they need is a direction. They need that pillar of fire out in front of us. Just enough light for the next step. Would you give them the courage uh, to see that and to follow it? And ask us in Jesus' name. Amen.